Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but people do not like being told what to do. The quickest way to discover this reality for yourself is try to lead anything, be it a group project at school, company, project at the office, even stunningly pastoring a local church. The cries from the cheap seats are astounding. Everybody knowing how better to do things than you do. And before we're too quick to condemn all the haters out there, we must quickly recognize this tendency in our own hearts. I mean, how many of you really like being told what to do? Just fills you with joy to be commanded to obey. I, like you, have certainly always bristled at notions of authority for as far back as I can remember. Perhaps for some of us, it's because we've been wounded by authority gone crazy. People who were supposed to have authority, supposed to be respectful, and did not live up to that notion. Perhaps for most of us, it's because we think that other people actually don't know what they're talking about. Or perhaps we are so filled with ourselves that we want to learn how to do things on our own. And even if other people are right, we would rather figure out the hard way. Now, of course, for us all, there are times when we do submit to authority. Most often, this is going to come in one of two forms. Either positional authority. This person is my boss. They make decisions that affect my life and my livelihood. Therefore, I will submit to them whether I like it or not. This is my professor. She grants me a grade on my final exam. Therefore, whether I like it or not, she is positionally in authority, so I will submit. Or perhaps as a kid, this person positionally is my parent. And as Bill Cosby says, they brought me into the world and they can take me out. So I will submit. They have power or position, and so we do. Or willing authority, earned authority. This is a much more honorable way to consider authority. Perhaps there is someone in life that's life, their character is so compelling, their life so honorable, that you choose to willingly submit to their authority. Now, I would guess that cases of the latter are few and far between for most of us. There are very few people that do not perhaps have positional authority over us, but they have earned authority. When not given a choice, like not a boss or a parent or a teacher, most of us do not naturally submit to the authority of another person. And that's what makes our text this morning so challenging. Because the issue that Jesus is going to address is one of authority. If you've got your Bible, you can open them to Mark 11. We're going to finish out the chapter in Mark 11 this week. Really looking at this um, central idea 
the authority of Jesus. Now, let's attempt, if you're new with us, to uh, give a basic reconstruction of the last few days in Jesus' life. We know that the book of Mark divides almost in half with Jesus' earthly ministry and then the second half focusing on his path to the cross and subsequent resurrection. So he has at this point finished his Galilean ministry where he has declared and demonstrated himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was to come, while pointing out uh, consistently throughout that this is not going to go down the way people expect it to go down. What they think Messiah means and the path that Jesus is going to take are going to be very different. He has, in the week leading up, crossed the Jordan River and entered back into Jericho, healing two blind men, one named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And he has, in healing these and opening the eyes of the blind, contrasted his ability to give sight to the blind with the spiritual blindness of his closest followers. And now he's in the midst of a procession from Jericho to Jerusalem for the Passover, Arriving on Saturday night, spending the night in Bethany with some of his closest friends, Sunday, gathering with these friends, a healing miracle worker who would have attracted the attention of all those around. Monday morning, he rises early in the morning and he sends his disciples ahead of him to get a colt. Bringing this back, he rides into the city, presenting himself to the nation as their king. This triumphal entry where people cry what we just sang. Hosanna, the king is here. And this triumphal procession ends really anticlimactically with him going to the temple and looking around and leaving. What should have been the crescendo of his entrance to the spiritual house of God is met with nothing, according to Mark. He just leaves. Tuesday morning, he awakes, goes back to the city again, this time going straight to the temple where he sees that it is destroyed and broken, the religious system has run amok, and he cleanses it. Mark highlights for us the fact that this cleansing of the temple draws the ire of the religious leaders, unlike we've seen up to this point. They want to kill him. And so as not to cater to their desire to kill him, he uses the fig tree, this fig tree twice in the story, as an illustration of the fruitlessness of the nation of Israel and the coming destruction that would surely befall the temple itself. Wednesday morning, he gets up, walks right past this withered fig tree, is asked about the fig tree, and teaches the lessons that we learned last week, re-enters the city, and begins what is a long day of confrontation with the religious leaders. This scene is expounded in more detail in Matthew 21 through 24, uh, kind of crescendoing with 23, which is just con condemnation after condemnation of the Pharisees. But we begin our story in Mark 11, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, so this is Jesus and his traveling band. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
period. What a great scene. I want to frame uh, our discussion of this passage around four questions this morning. If you're taking notes, these would be really good things to jot down. I'd encourage you to do so as uh, we try to practice around here that we're living in the text and community. So many of you studied this passage in your small groups this week, or you'll be talking about it in clusters and in your small groups as you go. I want to create a church community here that feasts on the Word on Sundays, but also feasts throughout the week. So I hope you come with a notebook and a pen and a Bible with you as we gather around the Word on Sunday mornings. Here are four questions, four critical questions that this text Uh, helps frame for us. Question number one, who has authority and where does it come from? Question number one, who has authority and where does the authority come from? Question number two, why do the people resist this authority? All right, so question one, who has authority and where does it come from? Question two, Why do people, these people, resist his authority? Question number three, how does Jesus exercise his authority? How does Jesus exercise his authority? And then question four, where we'll land, why does Jesus exercise his authority? All right, so let me backtrack. You've got them. Give yourself some space to write. Who has authority and where does it come from? Why do the people resist this authority? Question three, how does Jesus exercise his authority? And question four, why does Jesus exercise his authority? All right, so let's start with question number one. Who has authority and where does it come from? This really provides the foundation for our text. This is the question that the text is driving and answering. The other four questions and answers are derived from our understanding of this central answer. So who has authority and where does it come from? This, this question that has been somewhat implicit throughout the book is made explicit through the questions of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus has been pictured in Mark's gospel as being fully God and having the full authority of God. I want you to consider, I'm going to blast you with scripture this morning, okay? So may require you doodling a little bit. Consider the ways that we have seen Jesus' authority on display throughout his ministry up to this point, uh, where we have explicitly seen the idea of authority. One, We've seen him teach with authority. Mark 1, they were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Matthew 7 uh, pictures the same idea. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So what's the contrast there? Jesus is teaching with authority that's different than the authority that's from the scribes and the religious leaders. How so? Jesus doesn't footnote anyone. This is great news for college students, right? Jesus doesn't cite his sources. 
he teaches with original authority. If you're a rabbi in Jesus' day, you're teaching from derived sources. This rabbi said this thing, this rabbi picked up on this notion, and this rabbi said it, and then this rabbi said it, and now I'm saying it to you. Jesus teaches with unique authority. That's not footnoted. Uniquely authoritative as the Son of God. Teaches with authority. Number two, he commands demons with authority. That's great. Mark 1, 27. They were all amazed, and they began to argue with one another, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So he teaches with authority. He exercises demons, commands demons with authority. And it it only builds from here. Thirdly, he forgives sins with authority. Mark 2, 10 and 11, the paralytic story. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. After another of his healing stories in Matthew 9, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus has the unique ability as God, the authority of God, to forgive sins. Now, take that one step further. In John 1, 12-13, an astounding statement about Jesus' authority. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus, as God, has the authority to grant people adoption into God's family. He chooses who the children of God are. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, your hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He has the authority to give eternal life. He has the authority, idea number five, to execute judgment on behalf of God. John 5, 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, this is Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. His authority, he teaches with authority, he commands demons with authority, he forgives sins with authority, he grants people the right to be children of God with authority, he executes judgment, the judgment of God with authority, and he even has authority over his own life, death, burial, and resurrection. He says in John 10, No one's taken my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my father. What a stunning statement, right? No one's killing me. I've got authority. I'm going to lay it down and get this. I've got the authority to raise it back up. Now there is a stark difference that should be noted, no, noticed in these notions of authority between power and authority. Jesus has both. He has both the power, which we would define as the ability to do something, 
but he also has authority. He has the right to do something. Okay? These both crash in Jesus. He has both power and authority. You guys know as well as I do that just because someone has the power to do something doesn't mean that they have the authority to do so. I mean, I could walk in your college New Testament class and grant you an A on that essay that you slaved for 45 minutes over, right? I certainly have the power to do that. I can walk in, I've got a red pen, and I know how to draw an A. But simply because I have the power to do that doesn't mean I have the authority to do so. Your faculty would laugh at me. They would run me out. I have no authority to make that statement. Jesus has both. He has both the power and the authority to do all these things, to teach, to command demons, to forgive sins, to grant the right to become children of God, to execute judgment, and to control his own life, death, burial, and resurrection. And what we know about this is if that is true, the religious leaders know that this is blasphemy. No one can do that but God alone. The religious leaders have to know this to be true. It seems that their question is putting a carrot before Jesus, just waiting for him to say it. I'm God. So they ask in the text for his ordination papers. They want his papers of authority. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is the authority of Jesus such a big deal for the religious leaders. Consider for a moment a religious system that has developed for decades and centuries. Authority in such a religious system is a really big deal. You don't just show up with authority. In fact, as we've already noted, the rabbis of Jesus' day, they had no inherent authority on their own. They quoted rabbis who quoted other rabbis who quoted other rabbis who quoted other rabbis. The unique voices in our culture, you think, man, that guy says things that I've never heard before. Just throw that out the window, all right? Unique voices in our culture just quote obscure people that you've never heard before. Everybody's getting it from somewhere. There's no original ideas, no original sermons. An eminent, well-respected rabbi in Jesus' day would originally, he would have ordained his own disciples, but because of the abuse of power that was happening, the chief priests and later the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, took over this responsibility. They sanctioned one as having authority as a rabbi. The potential rabbi would appear before court and give a discourse and be evaluated by this supreme council. And then, if he passed the test, he would be granted the right to bind and loose, to exercise power. And as a statement of status, clothing, hats, tassels, all of this, the length of one's hair, would symbolize how much power and authority one had. You simply did not bypass this authority structure. Some even thinking that this was an unbroken chain of authority dating all the way back to Moses. And so they challenged Jesus' authority. And he masterfully answers their challenge. He answers with a counter question. 
Notice in the text, typical rabbinical fashion, he answers the question with another question. He's not being evasive. This is a brilliant answer to the question of authority. If he came right out and said, yep, I'm God, I've got authority as God, he would have been playing into their trap. So he sets them up. He turns the tables that they were trying to play on him. He turns them on the scribes, the religious leaders of his day. You ask about the baptism of John. Where was it from? This is a guy that everyone knew, right? The last of the Old Testament prophets, the voice crying out in the wilderness, there is one who is coming, preaching a message of repentance so that those would be, the people would be ready for the Messiah's coming and baptizing people as an outward symbol of this inner cleansing that they should seek before the Messiah appears on the scene. John, who would later see Jesus and declare publicly, Behold, this one, this Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Messiah is here. And so Jesus asked about John's baptism. Where was it from? Was it from heaven? Or was it from man? They knew, we see in the text, that if they said it was simply from earth, they were in big trouble. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 5, when Herod plots to kill John, we're told in the text he's afraid. Why? Because all the people loved John. Mark makes that clear here in the text as well. All the people believed that John was a prophet. And so if, he, if they answered, uh, it's just from man, it's just another quacky religious leader out in the desert, then all the people would say, this can't be true. And they would have been immediately discredited. But if, on the other hand, they had said, no, his baptism was from heaven, sanctioned by God, authoritative by God, well, then what is the direct implication of that statement? Then why in the world, as Mark says, don't you believe that I'm the Messiah? Because that's what he said. If you believe that he's from God, he was baptizing with the authority of God, then clearly what he said is of God, and he said that I'm the Messiah. So they're trapped, right? Say one, and you answer Jesus' question that he's the Messiah. Say the other, and you lose all your approval polls. Dip, right? Okay? Bad decision. And so they reasoned with themselves. Matthew 21, uh, in recounting the same story, says the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying... If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. It's, it's, I mean, it's classic, right? You just picture the little huddle on the sidelines of the boys. All right, hold on for a second, Jesus. We need to go talk about this. And then the cameras kind of pan in. This would show up on Facebook the next day with one of those silly little videos. All right, and you would see the disciples like talking amongst themselves. Like, all right, we're in trouble now. I don't know what to say. If we say this, then he's going to say this. If we say this, then he's going to say this. So I got it, boys. Let's just say we don't know. Think about how stunning a confession that is from religious leaders. I don't know. This was their whole identity, was made up in knowing the answer to every question. It was their job to know. And they're trapped. This is absolutely infuriating 
if you're in their shoes. Have you ever been verbally backed into a corner by someone? Like in a discussion or in an argument where you know you're way over your head. Out-argued by someone who's way smarter than you and it just leaves you with no reply. (laughs) For me, it's like, just hit me, bro. Like, I'll take physical confrontation any day over that. You get flustered, my head gets all splashy back here, and there's no way to hide it. I want to put, like, a hoodie on, but there's nothing I can do. And I, like, I get all, I can't figure out what to say next. It just makes you feel dumb. This seems to be the point. They don't have an answer. And then Jesus ends. I mean, this is a drop-the-mic moment, right? All right, then I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. If you're not going to answer me, I'm not telling you. This seems to be a classic case of not casting your pearls before swine. Jesus knows that the religious leaders' hearts are hardened. They've had opportunity after opportunity to respond in faith and repentance, and they are now so predisposed to reject his message that he says, you guys already know. I've already told you. And so we must ask the second question. And I promise the answers to the latter three will not be as long as the first. Why do people resist his authority? If the answer to the first question, who has authority and where does it come from, is Jesus has authority and he gets that authority because he is the Son of God, then why would people resist that authority? This is going to set off for us in the text a spiritual controversy narrative that will play out in the next chapter, much like the physical confrontation in the temple. Mark mentions three groups of people, chief priests, scribes, and elders. General term for a big bucket of people that would consist of the high priest, the captain of the temple, kind of the VP in command, the regular weekly priest who offered sacrifices and carried out the ceremonial law, the daily priest, at least 156 of these, who would minister in the temple every day, and then kind of your ordinary priest who would oversee the administrative responsibilities. They were in charge of the keys and the doors and the gates. And then the treasurers who were over the money. The last of these two groups could have been divided up into groupings of all kinds and sizes. Groups responsible for festivals and music and trumpets and bakery and salt and wood and drink offerings and lots and burn offerings and animal offerings. Imagine, if you will, your worst church committee structure times a thousand. I mean, if you read the book of Leviticus, put those laws and instructions in the hands of about 200 engineering types and watch what results, right? A codified system of religious protocol, mind-numbing to the smartest of us in the group. And in the face of that authority structure, what did Jesus do? He absolutely ignored it. He never asked their permission to do anything. Not a thing. I mean, he he didn't consult them for the temple cleansing rule book before he went out and did it. And there were rule books for temple cleansing. We have at least two episodes in the Old Testament of religious leaders cleansing the house of God. But here you see Jesus, just some seemingly vigilante citizen, 
coming and wiping people out. There's a procedure to follow. He doesn't ask the religious leaders even so much as to approve of his healings or consult them for the doctrines that he's teaching. His verdicts or his judgments are his own. He consults with them for nothing. Uh, you may not know some of my, my backstory, but I have a master's degree in counseling. And as I finished up that master's in counseling, we had to do four rotations. One of those I spent doing marriage and family counseling. It was the most awkward experience of my life. I'd been married for about two years. And uh, my responsibility was to sit in the counselor's office with a seasoned counselor that had been doing this for about 40 years, while couple after couple after couple came in uh, threatening divorce and all kinds of craziness. And my responsibility was to sit there and say, nothing, right? Say nothing. I was a fly on the wall. In fact, they had to sign a consent form that I could even hover on the sidelines. So I sat in this dark chair in the back corner of the room while they talked about all their personal problems. I did that for eight hours a day for the better part of six months. And then I decided I don't want to be a counselor anymore, all right? Uh, you can imagine what would happen with me if I'm like, hey, <laughs> I got a solution, guys. Y'all really shouldn't do that anymore, right? Two years into marriage, the dude from the back voice in the corner, I don't have the authority to say those things. If anything, even if I were going to suggest, the only suggestion I might make would be to pull the counselor aside in some corner outside after the counseling session is over and say, hey, counselor bro, I, I wouldn't call him counselor bro, but doctor bro, I was thinking about this. Do you think this would be a good idea? I would most certainly ask his permission, filter things through him. We see none of this in Jesus. He didn't even ask them to discern who the children of God were. And then to throw gas on the fire, Matthew points out this in Matthew 21. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. He says, even the outsiders, they got it, but not you. So consider question number two. Why did they resist authority? I want to propose to you that it's the very same reason you and I do. Because the authority of Jesus threatened their own authority. His authority... And their authority collided. This is seemingly the plight of humanity since the fall. Nature of the first sin, stepping out from under the authority of God. Did God really say? And ever since, human depravity has made it such that we long for authority, we long for control, and we recognize, when we're honest, that the authority of Jesus and my own authority to exercise control of my life are often at odds. And we, just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, are prone to build lives that insulate us from the authority of God. I want you to consider how prone you are to be unwilling to submit even to the smallest details where God attempts to exercise authority on your life. How like the religious leaders of Jesus' day you are to build structures and systems that at least by this point in Mark's narrative, 
Make it such that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they can't say you're the Messiah. They've got too much at stake. There's too much on the line. I mean, think about the ways that we articulate this. Man, this is just what I do. This is just who I am. These are my rules. These are the habits. This is, this is what I do. These are my plans. Even little simple things like your pace of life. I mean, consider with me for a moment how much your pace of life can render you unable to submit to the authority of God. Frantically scurrying from one activity to the next with little buffer ever provided for you, even if you wanted to, to stop and engage someone in conversation about the gospel. To minister to that neighbor who's hurting and discouraged and broken because, man, my kid's got to get to the next soccer game. We build lives, I'm convinced, I do as well, that buffer us from the authority of God, and we're blind to it. So question number three, how does he then exercise his authority? Jesus has authority. It's given by God. People resist it because they want authority. And so how do we see him exercise his authority? I think this answer is quite simple. He exercises authority through his word. He commands the demons. He proclaims an authoritative gospel. He curses a fig tree. He condemns religious leaders. His word is the means by which he exercises authority over his people. He declares to them, have faith in God. And yet the people continue to bristle from this authority. The same must be true then for you and I. If God continues to exercise authority in our lives through the living and active word, as Hebrews declares, that is powerful and effective to bring about change in our lives, let me ask you to consider how you do at stooping under the authority of the word on a daily basis. If God continues to meet and continues to speak and continues to exercise authority over his people through his word in the same way that he did in this text, God is doing the same thing in your life. And so, we would say that the process of stooping under the authority of God would run along the same tracks as your submission to the authority of his word. So are you consistently meeting with God in his word? And then secondly, doing what it says. If not, let me give you just a really practical challenge that's not going to blow any of your minds with my theological brilliance. But I'm convinced that as churches and as leaders, if we just simply set out each day, to meet with the Lord and say, God, I want you to speak to me and show me one tangible area that I can obey. And then acted in obedience to that one small thing. It could be as simple as a phone call on your ride in with a word of encouragement to a friend that you know is struggling. Could be articulating the gospel to that stranger that's sitting next to you at Starbucks 
It could be sending a note of apology to a spouse that you know you have wounded. We often think of the authority of God in these macro levels, and that is true. He is sovereign ruler of all things. But I'm convinced that we have to make this micro in our lives. That until we learn to retrain our hearts by God's grace to hear him speak and to obey, we will never find ourselves increasingly relinquishing our death grip on our own authority. So church, this week, what would it look like for you to daily, practically submit to the authority of God through his word? Last question. We're done. Why does Jesus use his authority? My guess in the introduction and as we've moved through this text, the notion of authority for most of you sounds off really terrible stereotypes in your mind. It's a lot like reading Ephesians 5 and crossing the word submission, and you can watch everyone's face in the room just get gnarly, right? Everybody just gets mad in a moment. The same thing happens to notions of authority. It brings up really terrible stereotypes in our minds. But I want you to consider this morning, while the people did not see it in this text, that the authority that Jesus was exercising in cleansing the temple and illustrating that through the fig tree, was actually for their good. The picture of the cursed fig tree is prophetic of the coming destruction that would befall the people. Jesus knew that the religious system that they had orchestrated was leading them to miss him and in turn to miss out on a relationship with God. He knew that the path they were walking would not save And so his kingship was not military, it was not economic, it was not social, it was principally spiritual. He came to clean up the house of Israel. And he says to them that faith in God, in the text we just read, faith in God could do something that this temple, this mountain, this religious structure will never be able to do. In fact, you could take the mountain of Jerusalem and throw it into the sea for all we care. Because faith in God made possible through the finished work of Christ, is all that matter. Because true worshipers, as Jesus says in John 4, they worship in spirit and in truth. We don't have to put a place on worship of God. We worship him in spirit and truth. You can throw this building into the sea, and it'll have no impact on your ability to worship God. Faith in Christ is what is required. He knows this better than they do themselves. And this makes sense if he's the king. If he is the creator who is there from the foundations of the world, it makes sense that he knows how better to build life than they do. He knows the folly of their religious systems better than they do. And so his authority is actually gracious authority. I mean, consider, many of you have experienced this, particularly if you're an older parent, grandparent. The heartbreaking reality of watching someone that you love run their life off a cliff, even in the face of tender, loving, 
prayerful, winsome counsel by a multitude of counselors. It is heartbreaking to watch. Just because they want to control what is right, to control their own destiny, they run themselves off a cliff, and you can, as much as you want, say, I'm for you. I've got your good in mind. You're going to make a wreck of this. This is terrible. But they don't consider authority in light of your loving care, do they? And neither do we often when we think of the authority of God. And consider the biblical imagery. If a sheep is walking off a cliff, stop is the most gracious thing imaginable. Is it authoritative? You better believe it. Is it gracious? You better believe it. If you're walking a path and your friend sees you take a detour from the path and they say, hey, warning, You're in the woods. You need to get back to the path before dark or you're going to be in trouble. Is that authoritative? You better believe it. It is it gracious? You better believe it. This is the way that God exercises his authority in our lives. The question is, do we really believe that God knows better how to live our lives than we do? I think this is really the crux of the discussion. Do we really believe that not only does he have positional authority, I mean, he tells us that in Matthew 28, right? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's a lot of authority. The question is, does your life demonstrate not simply that he has positional authority, but that you are willingly submitting to his authority? that you are willingly submitting to his authority. This morning, this text reminds us all of our need to consistently, humbly submit to the authority of God, even when it doesn't seem to make sense. Some of you this morning are here because somebody made you come, Your family thinks it's good when you're in church and you are still absolutely convinced that you know better how to live your life than God does. We're going to pause and pray in a minute and we're going to pray for you that God would expose the futility of your leadership of your own life. And here's the painful reality for some of you. That's going to mean a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. going to take for God to pry your hands off those things. For some of you, by God's grace, you are here this morning because you are there. You have tried to exercise control consistently and found out you're really pretty terrible at running your own life. Being here this morning and owning that confession is a beautiful act of repentance and faith. If you're here this morning, you say, man, I'm at my end. I've tried to be my own God, and I'm really lousy at it. We would love this morning to introduce you to one who knows better how to live your life than you do. 
This morning as we stand and sing, you can come and pray with a pastor down front with a small group leader where you're seated. And then lastly for all of us, friends, we have so far to go in stooping under the gracious authority of King Jesus, don't we? My heart has miles to go in that. And I don't know what your issue is this week where you're bristling at his authority in your life. But I pray that you would use this space of confession and repentance to willingly relinquish your authority and submit to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's do that together as a church as we pray. Father, in this space of quiet reflection, we note that if you did not have authority, praying prayers like this would be futile. You couldn't do anything about it. We are stunned that we as fallen people can talk to the sovereign king of the universe holds all things together by the word of his power, is perfectly executing his sovereign purposes and plans. We acknowledge, even with our bowed heads and closed eyes in this space, that you are the rightful authority over all things. My prayer for my friends this week, for myself, is that we don't simply acknowledge that as positional authority, but that we willingly submit to that authority. That you would use this space and this time to break us of our death grip on our own authority and humble us and teach us by your grace to obey. We ask for the sake of Christ.